you who are online, glad that you're here too. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. Pray that you find something meaningful. We got this really weird thing going on with our, there we go. It's supposed to look like that. Anyway, uh, I hope that you're doing well. Does it, has anybody noticed that we went from like spring-like temperatures to full-on summer? Did we get a transition? No, I didn't think so. Uh, so those of you who uh, don't live in the Oklahoma area, it's like a uh, heat index of 100, and that's really kind of unusual for June, and, and it's, it's just really, really hot. So anyway, so wherever you are, we hope that you're enjoying the day. I have a brief announcement to make. Masks. Um, I want to let everyone know that starting next week, which is Father's Day, my Father's Day gift to you is that we are only encouraging people to wear masks rather than um, requiring everybody to uh, walk into the building to wear one. Now, here's the deal. Um, if you are more comfortable wearing a mask, that's cool. We want you to feel free that you can do that. If you, um, you know, fully vaccinated, or sorry, if you have the shot, let me put it that way, and uh, you are comfortable um, not wearing a mask, um, you can do that. Uh, the statistics seem to be enough now where I'm a little more comfortable with kind of raising that restriction. And so um, starting next week, if you feel like being fully free, if your face needs freedom in Jesus, there you go. Uh, it's entirely up to you. You can make that decision. So uh, if you have any questions about that, please let me know. There will be another announcement going out this week uh, at some point. Um, probably a video or an email or that type of thing. So uh, stay tuned for that. But you, because you're here, heard it first. So there we go. Anyway, uh, so mask um, man mandates, restrictions, whatever you want to call it. We're going to just encourage you to wear the mask, um, but you certainly don't have to if you're comfortable living that way. I'm okay with it. Sounds good. All right, so we are in the process of... Um, talking about King David. The funny part is we're actually leading up to King David. Um, we're trying to gain some historical per perspective for this because I think it's really important. There's a backdrop to all of this, and, and I think by now, if you've spent any amount of time listening to me preach, that you'll know that that background is really important for us to fully understand what's going on. And the further away that we get from those moments in time and in custom, the harder it is to, to really in, interpret what the Bible is trying to tell us. And so we want to get some historical perspective. We want to get that backdrop so that you know, we have a better understanding of, well, in this case, it's going to be King David and his life so that the lessons that we learn are, um, accuracy is not the, really, the word that I'm looking for, uh, but truthful. That we really have this truthful understanding of, of hopefully what's happening and then can extrapolate some things for our own lives. <clears throat> so here we are, um, historically speaking, I, I've just arbitrarily taken the um, uh, history of, of Israel and divided it up into six major segments. Uh, and we're in the purple section here where there's a, a shift that's going on in the leadership of the country from the role of judges, which are kind of regional, tribal leaders who were around for relatively short periods of time. And, and there's this move that's going on towards a monarchy, going, going towards kings. And the transition is really important. There are some things that happen in that transition that give us not only uh, a historical perspective to King David, but also shows us the heart of God. 
and we're going to talk a little bit more about that today. So last week we learned about a man named Samuel, um, and uh, uh, he served as kind of the last judge, but also the first of what we would call the Old Testament prophets. And so that you have this office of prophet that really kind of oversaw the kings. It was the voice of God to the people of God, especially to the king. And so we're moving now from this regional, organic type of leadership to something that's more systemized form of government, if that makes sense. Try to put it that way. So Samuel bridges that gap between um, judge and prophet. And so today we're going to look at how that shift in government form actually happens. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today. Um, if you have a Bible, you might want to pull that out, or you can punch it into your app. Either one is fine. As long as you've got your eyes on the word, we're good to go. So last week, we talked about how God called Samuel, and he went on to have this kind of storied career um, as a, both a prophet and a judge. And... Um, He's, he's a tough guy. I mean, he really is. I mean, he's, he's, he's a tough guy, and he's willing to make tough calls, and we'll see that from time to time throughout um, his life. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that because if you're a prophet, you are called to sometimes say things that are unpopular, and you've you got to be tough in order to do that. And if you don't believe me, then I highly suggest that you read through some of the Old Testament prophets and you can see uh, some of the things that they suffered because they had to be willing to make the tough call. And I have men- mentioned this once a long time ago that prophet is not something that I would want under my name on a business card. I'm not sure I would want that given kind of how the Old Testament treated the prophets. Um, but like all human beings, um, Samuel started to slow down a little bit. <clears throat> And uh, as he got older, um, his responsibilities, he had to, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Distribute them a little bit more so that he didn't take on you know, everything just himself. And so we're going to pick up the story in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse 1. I want to read this to you, and then I'm going to make some comment as we go. All right? When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's judges. Uh, in some translations, it says leaders. Uh, But the term here is judges. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba, which is kind of the northern part, if I remember correctly, of Israel. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now, I, I think this is really important that we see this here. Because um, if you go back to, I think it's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and 3, Samuel himself had a mentor named Eli. And Eli also had two sons who were very bad men. They served um, uh, at a place of worship. Um, I wouldn't necessarily call it a temple, but it was uh, a place of worship like that. And they did really bad things. Um, In fact, the first prophecy that Samuel ever got was judgment against Eli and his sons. Boy, that had to have been a fun conversation to have for a little boy to have with his mentor, right? No, not at all. That would have been very difficult. And 
this is an unfortunate note that we have here in chapter eight, and it, it, there just seems to be this parallel um, with what we read about Eli's sons. But what's so odd to me is that uh, Joel and Abijah do not suffer the same fate or the same judgment as Eli's sons did. And in fact, I, I did a quick check. I don't find any record of um, Samuel's sons other than this. I mean, it's, it's almost like it, it's a footnote in the history that his sons had perverted some justice, and that was kind of it. There's, there's nothing else there about them. Um, whether they're stricken from the record or not, I don't know. And the only thing that I can think of, um, and I don't really have time to develop it too far, but it just seems to me that Eli's sons were of a priestly caste. They had a very specific job, and they would have been trained for it at a very young age. And so they should have known better, right, is kind of the idea here, where a judge and a prophet didn't necessarily have that sense of history, and so therefore maybe they're held to a different standard. Now, that's not a hill I want to die on, but it's one of those places in the text where there seems to be some tension to me that just makes me uncomfortable. Why is it that Eli's son, sons have judgment uh, poured out upon them, more or less, and, and Samuel's sons, who are, I don't know about equally, but just as bad in, in many respects, nothing, nothing's really said about them any further. Um, so maybe the, the penalty was harsher because they were priests. I'm not really sure about that. But it bothers me, and I don't like that. I like to have tension. How many of you like to have your tension resolved? Yes, of course, we all do. So anyway, that's kind of my understanding of this. Um, well, let's move on. So uh, verse four. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. <laughs> that's nice, right? And your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. So <laughs> you're old. And uh, we don't trust your boys, so we want a king. And by the way, that king is not you. Is really what they're saying here, right? Very clear and direct. There's a, a shift that's going on. Samuel, you've led us this far. It might be time for you to retire. Nobody trusts your boys. <clears throat> but notice that it, it says this, that such as all the other nations have. So if you look around them, uh, around Israel at this time, you're going to see a lot of smaller kings and kingdoms, the largest of which is probably Egypt in the south. Uh, you may have uh, had some um, larger kingdoms in the north, in modern-day Iran and Iraq. Uh, at this point in time, their influence uh, probably not as strong as Egypt's uh, was, perhaps, but all the other smaller nations have kings. And what's so interesting is that, that they're saying to Samuel is that we're different. This is a theocracy where God is king. And so if, if, we, if we think about that uh, on a little deeper level, it seems to me that when God is king, you don't have an earthly king, but when God is king, 
then every family, every individual was personally responsible for the covenant with God. There's a direct link between God and his people involving the covenant. That's what was established on Mount Sinai with the giving of the Torah. That book, first five books of the Bible, that every Jew would understand as the most important thing in, in how they would behave and what's going on with their lives. And in that sense, there is a certain amount of freedom. When you have that direct link to, to God himself, there's a certain amount of freedom. You're not relying on intermediaries. Now, of course, there's a priestly caste. There's a, a, a family of, of Israelites who who perform that function to help Israel stay true to the covenant. I get that, but there's still a certain amount of freedom here. And it's a, more of a direct access that they would have and responsibility for the covenant. Now keep that in mind as we keep moving on. Verse 6, But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. See, the truth of the matter is, give us a king. You have one. It's God. No, 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 we want a king like everybody else has. Ah, I see. And so if you're Samuel and you're the leader, you're the judge, and you've been doing this for a while, it can feel like personal rejection, but it's not. It's not personal rejection. This is something that God is very aware of. He understands what's happening here. They want a human king. And even though that Yahweh, even though that God was king, Samuel was the steward, and so he's taking a certain amount of certain amount of the criticism personally, I would imagine. It would be hard not to, I think. Verse 8, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. <laughs> How's that feel, Samuel? Huh? Now listen to them, but warn them, warn them, warn them, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Oh boy, this is where it gets really interesting. Now listen to them, but warn them. Now we need to hit the pause button here because this is really important for us to think about. There's a historical thing that's happening here. Back when God brought them up out of Egypt and gave them the law, back in Deuteronomy, in fact it's in Deuteronomy 17, if I recall right. Yep, Deuteronomy 17. God knew this was going to happen. Here it is. Verse 14, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. This is a prophetic statement. God understood that at some point in Israel's history, they're not going to want a theocracy. They're going to want something like all their friends have. They're going to want to do what everyone else does because they see it and it makes sense to them. 
It's the narrative they're hearing over and over. It's what they're experiencing daily as they interact with people around them. When you enter the land, not if, not, not you know, if you decide this or if you're thinking about it, mm-mm, when, you, when you enter the land and when they say, not if, when they say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. You see that? It's really important that we understand that God understood that this kind of thing would happen. <clears throat> this is why you want a prophet to help them choose a king. To make sure you appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. That's the role of a prophet. Prophet would always anoint who the next king would be. And we'll actually see that when David uh, ascends to the throne. This will be very interesting. Again, this is all backdrop, right? So the prophet chooses. God chooses and the prophet essentially expresses what, what God has choos- chosen. And so <clears throat> this is why the elders approached Samuel. is because he was serving this dual role. He was speaking as a prophet and as a judge and they needed basically him to, to do this. Now, there are also God, uh, 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 conditions that God puts on Israel's king. And I want to summarize them for you, uh, just so we're not reading the entire passage. But let me, let me just put them up here and you can kind of see them. In verse 15, uh, this is Deuteronomy 17, verse 15, it has to be an Israelite, can't be a foreigner. And so somebody who God chooses, but it has to be an Israelite. Second, secondly, that king, whoever it is, must limit the amount of horses that he has in his army. This is cavalry, okay? Um, there is a preference here for infantry, and I'll explain that in just a second. Most of the horses at that time would have come out of Egypt, and this would have been very bad because Egypt was the land of slavery. Don't you dare go back there, right? That will, you will think that is your source of power, and it's not. So in ancient warfare, um, you had uh, horsemen, uh, cavalry, and chariots, typically. It would be like tanks. Um, you could do a lot of damage from the platform of a chariot uh, to an, another army. And cavalry, of course, could dominate because you were always uh, attacking downwards on, on infantry, and whoever has the higher ground typically wins. And so what God says very specifically is, no, you're going to limit your cavalry. Why? Why would God do that? Why would, why would Israel field only a large number of infantry? Simply put, is because they would have to rely on God for victory. Does this make sense? They don't, he doesn't, God does not want that king to rely on horses and chariots to win the battle, but would, wants that king to rely on God for the victory. Do you see this? This is really important. <clears throat> Third, he has to limit the number of wives. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, so very often kings would make political alliances by marrying daughters and relatives of other kings in order to solidify that relationship. Well, if you're married, that means you're not going to turn around and stab me in the back. <laughs> sure. Um, but at, at that point, then that, that king has um, essentially what we would call a harem of, of women. And um, the, uh, the fear here is, or the, uh, the prohibition for 
uh, the number of wives, really comes down to the idea of they're going to have foreign gods. We're going to see that again in here a moment, in just a moment. So limit the, the number of, of wives. Um, there's this old phrase, happy wife, happy life. What if you've got dozens of them? And so if they're worshiping their gods and you want to keep them happy, well, okay, I'll go to service with you. And eventually, there's the, you run the risk of, of the king following other gods, even, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, even if it's nothing more than just to keep the relationship happy. Very interesting. Easier just to worship them. And then finally, the, the last um, kind of command here in Deuteronomy relates to the, the king to make a copy of the Torah for himself. And I have the impression that he's actually supposed to write it out himself, which would have taken great discipline. You've got five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Let me tell you, if you haven't read the book of Numbers and you have insomnia, try writing that bad boy out and tell me how you do. But the point is, is that if the king makes a copy of the Torah for himself, he's going to take it a little more seriously. And there is something about writing things down. This is why we encourage journaling here is that there's something about writing things down that's so important. If it's not written, it's not real. I'll just tell you that up front. Things that you write down, you're more likely to remember. And I think that it's a safeguard. Um, This is what the Torah says about Israel. This is our history. This is who God is in our history. And that's all supposed to... um, Uh, penetrate and saturate the mind of the king. It's so critical that we spend time in the word of God. Now, I I grew up, like a lot of you, where you're supposed to read your Bible and pray. Yes, that's true. It's a great idea. But to what end? Is it memorizing for the sake of memorizing? No, 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 no. It's to hear the voice of God. And that's exactly what's going on here. As a leader, they want that leader to hear the voice of God in the history This is what God did. Remember, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here's how bad it was. They want the king to remember that these are the things what the Lord has done. And so it is with you and with me. Um, As we listen to God, we interact with the text. And so here's here's a quick recommendation. If you want to learn how to read your Bible um, in an interactive sort of presence of God way, read until something jumps off the page at you. It will happen. Sometimes you might have to read three or four chapters, though, especially if you're, not, if you're in numbers. I'm just going to say, right? So as you're reading through your Bible, um, one of the things you'll notice is that for some reason, a sentence or a phrase or a word will kind of jump out at you, and you'll be like, huh, that's interesting. Write it down. If you don't have a journal, go get one. Write that word down because there's a very good chance that that word is going to mean something to you. If it doesn't already, it will in the future. It's a great way of doing it. I had a friend um, in seminary and she had talked about this, that she would read until, until God um, highlighted a passage. I think that was her term. I thought it was a, a great idea. And then she would write out whatever that verse was and then highlight it for herself and just ask, okay, Lord, is there a reason why you're highlighting this verse? It's a great way to interact with your text and see what the Lord has to say. 
So um, unfortunately, that takes discipline and it takes time, two things that modern Americans don't seem to have a whole lot of, right? There's a reason why the word disciple sounds like discipline. Just saying, keep that in mind. Okay, let's go back to 1 Samuel now. So we've got this passage in Deuteronomy that says, oh yeah, by the way, this is going to happen where you're going to want a king. Here we go. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. You've got to understand this. This is part of the warning that uh, Samuel is giving uh, to the people of Israel as they're asking for this king. He's going to claim certain things as his right because he's king. Uh, let's let's kind of walk through this. First and foremost, this is verse 11 and 12 of 1 Samuel 8. He's going to claim your sons for military service. Don't miss that. This isn't voluntary. This will be compulsory. And you may not like the reason why you're going to war. Sound familiar? Just saying. Next, he will claim your daughters as servants in the palace. Calls them perfumers and bakers. I really want to know what a perfumer was. I haven't figured that out yet. He'll claim your daughters as servants in the palace. He will claim some or all of your assets. And he talks about uh, the the, uh, uh, livestock that you might have or uh, he'll claim uh, some of the lands that you might have because back in that day, land was the means of production. And so the king's going to take some of that. Uh, He'll claim a tenth of all your produce. We call that taxes. If only it was only a tenth, right? Yeah. And eventually, and and this is verse 17, is there's a a warning that he'll enslave you all at some level. And the word is very specific here. And I think, personally, um, if you go back into the passage and read it, there's this, there's this notion here of, hey, remember that thing I brought you up out of Egypt? That whole reason why I did that? You go down this path, guess what? You're going to be right back there, but you're not going to be in Egypt, you're just going to be in Canaan. And there's a dire warning here. If you were a slave population, and that is part of your history, the prospect of going back into slavery, you're not going to want to do that. But isn't it amazing that over time, we tend to forget those things, right? And so I I really have the sense here that um, the elders of Israel are kind of looking at things with rose-colored glasses. But the people refuse to listen to Samuel No, they said, we want a king over us. And you kind of get the sense that they kind of stomp their foot just a little bit. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. You know, isn't that interesting? Because really, up until that time, they only fought battles when somebody encroached on them. This is a shift in thinking. It's not us that are going to go out and fight the battle. We're going to have somebody else lead us. We're going to have that king. Fascinating, really. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. 
God knew. He knew what was in their hearts. He understood that. It's an interesting little passage. I want to offer just a couple of thoughts on this. First thing I want to say about this it's very strange, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it's just odd. God knew this was going to happen, and when it does happen, it surprised Samuel, but didn't really surprise God, and God's like, yeah, okay. Go ahead and give him a king. They, God knew they were going to ask him for a king, but God also knew the downside, and yet he gave permission for it to happen anyway. I mean, really, when you kind of zoom out and you look at it, it's, it, it's that clear. Knew they were going to ask for it, knew what the downside was, and still gave him permission. And the question that I ask myself is, why? Why do you suppose God did that? I mean, wouldn't it have been easier for God to just, I don't know, demonstrate something and, you know, fire from heaven or whatever, and, and just kind of prove to them once again that he's God and they should still follow him and he's the king, and, and yet he doesn't do any of that. Why? Why does he do that? puzzled over this for a little bit a little bit and it seems to me if I look at the history of Israel it's almost like God was raising Israel like a parent and this this struck me um, there's a, a moment when Israel is leaving Egypt and God takes them into into the the wilderness by going through the Red Sea rather than taking a very familiar road up through the land of what would have been the Philistines. And God says very clearly, they're not ready for battle. And I'm afraid they'll return to Egypt. So he takes them by a different route. In other words, their maturity, their understanding, their growth, their... um, their development isn't there yet. So I'm going to protect them by, isn't that what we do with kids? We understand what they're ready for and what they're not ready for. I remember um, a doctor once telling us about, about uh, kids who are roughly three to four years old. They're all guts and no brains. funny when they're teenagers, it happens again. I don't know what that is. It's like it's cyclical or something. But anyway, that's the, the sense that, that God is raising Israel kind of as a parent does. And he disciplines them as time goes on and gives them a little more freedom and a little more um, opportunity. And, and they, not that they're earning things, but they kind of do as they're developing. He leads them out of of Egypt. He keeps them from conflict while they traveled in the wilderness. And when they were ready, then he brought them to Canaan and to conquest and to battle. And once they settled and they, they grew, God sent judges to help them along, which is a little bit different than the way he had interacted with them before. And now they were asking, maybe even demanding to a certain extent, some self rule to have a king rather than, to have a human king rather than the divine king. Israel saw what others had and wanted it. Like I said, rose-colored glasses. And how many of you parents have had your kids want certain things because they see their friends having them? For me, I remember when I was growing up, it was a Walkman. Do you remember the Sony Walkman? Some of you young people have no idea what I'm talking about. But this is when you had a cassette tape 
and you would put it in a little box and you have headphones. They weren't earbuds, but they were big foam headphones. And if you got sweaty, it was like putting wet foam on your ears. It was really gross, but you could listen to your music. And all my friends had them. And I wanted one too. But it wasn't something we could necessarily afford, and so I didn't get a Walkman. I got an off-brand, eventually. It wasn't a Walkman, but that's okay. But I remember that. I saw my friends having that, and I wanted one too, because it was cool. Yeah. Same thing is kind of sort of happening here in this particular moment in Israel's history. But what God does, and I think, I think this is important for us, he explained the consequences. He, he says very clearly, look, yes, I know that you want a king. By the way, here's what happens when you get a king. Just so that you're aware, because all you're seeing is a, as a human king that somebody else has, you don't see how the rest of the population is actually living. So let me explain this to you. There's consequences for it. And yet Israel still wanted a human king. And it hit me um, after a conversation I had with a friend of mine recently. Sometimes, as a parent, you have to love your children through their decision. That's the only way they're going to learn. They're not going to understand it until they go through it. And so you have to love them through that decision. And let me tell you, it's hard. It's hard to do that because wisdom and experience, <laughs> you know where this is going very often. I heard this the other day, or I think I saw it on a meme um, that kind of hit me, is that wisdom, um, good decisions come from, from wisdom, wisdom comes from experience, experience comes from bad decisions. <laughs> is that right? I think so. I think that's very true. And so sometimes it's like, yeah, I've already been through this, but you're not going to fully understand it until you go through it yourself, so I'm going to love you through it. And it's a hard thing to do, but it's the only way, I think, for, for that child to fully understand things. I don't think that God violates our free will. And so he gives them the choice to be able to do this particular thing. As long as they're still faithful to the covenant, it's going to look different now, but... You know, you're still responsible for that. And yet, there's some free will here. And he gave them some advisors, prophets and priests, in order to help the king. And, and, and through that, through those three offices, he loved them through that decision. He loved them through it, the whole thing. So even though we're responsible for the covenant, um, they had politics now that they had to deal with. Well, that's fun. Yeah. As if the covenant weren't enough. <laughs> and then you get to put, put politics on top of it. The other thing that I think I want to point out here, as I, as I think more about all of this, uh, and I'll, I'll confess, I might be a little jaded here, but that's okay. <clears throat> Some of you are used to that with me. What we see here, the warnings that God gives through Samuel, in my mind, is why it's so crucial for each one of us to check in with God ourselves. 
because there's this layer of government now. And so it's more important that I check in with God so that I understand what he's saying and not necessarily trusting the narrative. Because once you put politics into it, once you create an institution around it, hmm, that narrative might not always be fully truthful. I'm getting a little, I'm dancing a little close to that line, aren't I? I think we've seen this many times in recent history, of, of course, with Nixon. Um, of course, we've seen it with other presidents as we've, as we've gone along. Probably seeing it right now, and a lot of that stuff will come out later. I'm sure it will. Who knows? Human institutions are prone to corruption. They are. We see that throughout history, not just in the United States, but throughout world history, biblical history. Government on both sides of the aisle, prone to corruption. Authoritative bodies, whatever they happen to be, even if they have the word science in them, prone to corruption. Media outlets. Oops, did I say that? Yeah. And yes, even the church. There are some things that the church has defended that has no, they have no business defending and shouldn't have in history, um, largely due to corruption. And it's easy to pick on the Catholics with this one. And it's not just the Catholics, though. It's an institution. And any time that you create some type of an institution, it is alive. It wants to continue. And it will do whatever it can to protect itself. And so when you have institutions, when you're part of a a group of people, it's important that each one of us check in with God ourselves because God has something to say to each one of us. And this is the reason why we talk about this almost every single week. How are you spending time with God? How are you trying to be in his presence? Now, we can talk about things like having the power of God on our side, but that doesn't happen without the presence of God first. You can't have prophecy without being in the presence of God. And so we have to check in with God ourselves individually and interpret what's going on around us through that relationship, not vice versa. And so when we talk about things here, we talk about listening and responding to what God says. And I think that as I'm looking through this and I'm, and I'm seeing the parallels between an ancient people who are choosing a different form of government and looking at the parallels with our own uh, set of circumstances, I see it now more than ever just to encourage uh, every person that I meet is you need to be checking in with what God is saying to you into your family, into your church family, and saying, God, what do you have for me today? What are you assigning me to? What are you empowering me to do? Lord, who is it that you want me to love? These are the questions, in my mind, that are the biggest anecdote for all of the craziness that's going on in the world today. Because it's a little nuts. But there's a responsibility that each one of us has individually to check in, to make that time, to carve that time out and say, God, what do you want to say to me today? 
You might think it's a good idea that you write it down, but that's just me. <laughs> it's a great idea to do that. We want to listen. We want to process those things that we hear, and we want to respond to what we're hearing him say. I know most of you have heard me say this at some time in the past, but whoever's in the White House does not change my job. It doesn't. Because I'm still responsible for listening and responding to what God says to me, and so it is with all of you. And it's not just politics. I mean, it can be what's going on in your job right now. Your boss can change tomorrow. It doesn't change your responsibility to listen to what God is saying to you and to live that out accordingly. Does this make sense? We've got to put the priority in the right place. And it always starts with the presence of God first. You may need the power of God. And yes, he may show up in in ways that surprise you. But it typically starts with the presence of God first. Go ahead, give him a king. He, he He outlined all of the consequences of that and they still chose it but it's the people who listened and followed God individually those are the ones that we see the stories of within the text more about that in the future let's pray Jesus thank you for ancient stories that illuminate um, our current narratives God thank you for um, (laughs) showing us once again that human beings don't really change. Even over thousands of years, we're still human. We're still prone to selfishness and our own corruption. And we need you. And we need your presence, quite honestly, in order to guide us, um, in order to help us live the kind of lives that you really want for us. And so, Lord, I pray that each person that's listening to this, whether they're online or in-house, ultimately, God, that as they make time to be in your presence, that you would speak to them so clearly. It would just be, (laughs) be indisputable. And they would have a growing sense of confidence and a growing sense of faith and belief because you love them. And so would you um, be with us now as we sing again, as we worship, would you, would you meet with us here again one more time? Because the fact of the matter is, is that we need you. We like to think that we can do it on our own. But the truth is, all of us, everyone, knows fully that nothing is impossible um, for you. We know that. But sometimes we don't live it. So Lord, speak to us now as we try to meet with you. In Jesus' name, amen.